Senate majority will pass legislation. I will fight like hell for you every single day, like I've always done and always will. Welcome to this week's edition of New York Now. I'm Dan Clark. So as you can probably tell by now, we are full swing into this year's election cycle. And as we watch this year's races play out, there is this big looming question. Can Republicans win statewide? The last time that happened was in 2002, when former Governor George Pataki won his last term as governor. And at the time, Republicans took that as a sign that they were still competitive at the state level. But what they didn't know was that they wouldn't win another statewide race for the next four election cycles. That brings us back to today. And Republicans are hoping for a comeback in this year's elections, with a target on the race for governor. The party met in Long Island this week to solidify that strategy at their state convention. And we were there to see it all play out. Take a look. There's a new energy in New York's Republican Party. They see this year's elections as the best shot they have of winning statewide office in 20 years. And you could feel that momentum this week in Nassau County, where Republicans held their state nominating convention. The star of the show was Congressman Lee Zeldin, who went into the convention as the party's presumptive nominee for governor. He left with a new title, designated nominee after 85% of the party's delegates gave him their vote. We are going to win this race because we have to win this race. Zeldin is a four-term congressman and a former state senator with a background in the military. He's been the party's favorite for the job since last summer, and he's got a tough task ahead. Registered Democrats outnumber Republicans in New York by two to one. But Zeldin says he wants to reach New Yorkers that don't usually vote Republican with issues that cross party lines, like quality of education and support for law enforcement. We are all hitting our breaking points. It's our families. It's our communities. It is this state. We are leading the entire nation in population loss. And the solutions are easy to restore safety, to reverse the attacks on our security. But being the designated nominee doesn't automatically hand Zeldin the party's official nomination in this year's election. Sure, he has the party's support, but Republican voters will ultimately decide the nominee in June in a primary election. Zeldin's getting a challenge for the nomination from a few other Republicans who say they'd have a better chance at winning in November. Among them is businessman Harry Wilson, who still managed to pick up a few votes from delegates at the convention, despite announcing his run just the week before. If you look at what we've done in just the handful of weeks we've been looking at this race and the week we've been in it, I think we've already lapped the field in terms of our message, our vision, our capabilities, the quality of our team, and our presence across the state. He's running on a message to overhaul spending at the state level and make New York more affordable. And while he is a Republican, he says the party has no shot at winning this year if it doesn't evolve with voters. So I think the party is desperate for change and change agents who can come in from the outside and fix government. Others say they've already got the experience to make that happen. Former Westchester County Executive Rob Astorino is taking another shot at the governor's office. He was the party's nominee in 2014. He was elected twice in deep blue Westchester County and says he can do the same at the state level. And part of my success came from working closely with the African-American, Latino, and various Asian communities 
And I go where Republicans don't historically, and they should. Astorino got a few votes from delegates as well, but said he didn't expect anything more from the convention anyway. To him and the other candidates, they never had a shot with the party. So they're taking it to Republican voters in the June primary. Uh, look, this, this is all a dog and pony show. This apparently was decided in a back room back in December of 2020. So to me, it changes nothing. It's the same for Andrew Giuliani, a fan of small government who worked in the White House under former President Donald Trump. He's the son of former New York City Mayor Rudy Giuliani, who made a surprise showing at the convention to show his support and blast party leadership. And I think what they're doing with this dictated convention is a very damaging, very damaging to the party na nationally as well. The younger Giuliani has a leg up on the others with name recognition. A recent poll from Siena College showed that he's more well-known among Republican voters than the other leading candidates, and he sees that as his path to the nomination. I think just right now what we're seeing is you have a candidate of the party versus a candidate of the people. I'd much rather be the candidate of the people. Party leadership has pushed back, saying that every candidate made their case to the party's delegates over the past year. It's just that Zeldin won them over. State Republican Chair Nick Langworthy. Uh, I, I do believe Congressman Zeldin has a tremendous amount of support, you know, within the party structure. Self-interest is what self-interest is, though. There are candidates that, you know, think that they are the best candidate and the one destined to be governor. And we'll see what, you know, the process happens after we leave here. Zeldin's challengers will now have to collect signatures to get on the ballot for the June primary. Since Zeldin won at the convention, he gets to bypass that process. But that's not scaring anyone away. Even Lewis County Sheriff Mike Carpinelli, who struggled to gain support, said the competition could be good for the party. I think it's a fair process, and we need people to believe in our process, that it's still good, it still works, and we got to do the best we can to govern ourselves. Let's be unified, and let's go win. But aside from the nomination for governor, Republicans appeared largely united behind their other candidates for statewide office, like Allison Esposito, who's running for lieutenant governor alongside Zeldin. She's an NYPD veteran, and she's running as a tough-on-crime cop who's new to politics. Here's a unique idea. How about we hold the criminals to task? No one's challenging Esposito for that job so far, but that could always change if the other candidates for governor come out with a running mate. The primary in New York will be held on June 28th. So that was all on the second day of the convention. On the first day, the party voted to back candidates for the other statewide offices. Media personality Joe Pinion, who we just had on the show last week, is now the party's designated nominee for U.S. Senate, running against Chuck Schumer. The party picked Paul Rodriguez as their designated nominee for state controller. He'll run against incumbent controller Tom DiNapoli. And Michael Henry, who was on the show in December, is now the party's endorsed candidate for attorney general running against incumbent AG Tish James. Assuming those nominees hold, they'll make the most diverse ticket the Republican Party in New York has ever seen. And that's a sign of how the party is trying to evolve to reach more voters. While we were at the convention, I spoke about that and more with state Republican chair Nick Langworthy. 
Chairman Langworthy, thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you very much for having me. I guess I'm the one here and you're having me. It's true. <laughs> so this is a big convention. You haven't had it since 2018, obviously, because of everything that's happened, uh, 2018, the gubernatorial election. Talk to me about your party's strategy going into this year's elections. It's going to be different from last year, I assume, but how do you switch things up to get statewide candidates elected this year? Well, you know, our mission, since I started running for chairman back in 2019, was the not even the 2020 elections, it was the 2022 elections because we have uh, long focused on this because statewide elections are what's going to change the dynamics here in New York. Right. Uh, I have long said to change New York, you must change governors of the state of New York. You need to change philosophy in the governor's mansion and that's what our focus has been. Uh, so we started this process, as you know, last April. We started earlier than we've ever started before talking about statewide offices. And our process culminated today uh, with the nomination uh, of Congressman Lee Zeldin as our uh, endorsed candidate for the office of governor. Uh, he's, he's worked very hard, you know, this, this last almost year to go and, and coalesce the support within the party ranks. Uh, and I believe he's gonna, you know, take that all the way to November. Uh, we also have put forward uh, what I believe is uh, easily the most diverse slate of candidates that our party has ever put forward. It really is. Talk to me about that. Was Did it come away, was that natural or was that something that you were gearing towards for this year? You know, I, I've said from the beginning that I felt to make our party viable, to make our party uh, competitive, uh, and to break this streak uh, of uh, you know losing statewide elections, which has gone on for far too long. We have to have a party that looks like all of New York. Yeah. And we need different walks of life to be represented. On the, in, in, in the only way to do it, it's not about talking about it, saying I'm reaching out or going to an event. It's about putting forward candidates from a, a diverse background. And we have that in this. Uh, I think there's a, a lot of excitement about the candidacy of Joe Pinion. Uh, our next U.S. Senator to take on Chuck Schumer. I mean, Chuck Schumer, let, let's face it, hasn't had a real fight since he won the Senate seat, you know, back in 1998, defeating Alphonse D'Amato. That ends this year. Uh, and Joe Pinion will take, um, you know, the, the Schumer record on in every county, in every corner of the state of New York. And, in, you know, it's not about a senator that shows up, gets a quick press release, a, a quick snapshot and leaves. It's about someone that'll be a voice for all New Yorkers, not just the ones uh, for the political affiliation or the ideology he's trying to pander to at that moment. You know, it, with statewide candidates like this, you have an enrollment disadvantage with Democrats, about two to one. So you're going for conservatives, independents, all of those people, and, and hopefully trying to cross party lines and get Democratic mm -hmm. votes as well. Tell me how you do that with these statewide candidates this year. One of the great uniters that we have found, and we certainly saw it in the 2021 20, uh, local elections, is the issue of crime and safety and security. Yeah. Uh, New Yorkers don't feel safe in their communities, no matter if they live in the heart of Manhattan or in Brooklyn or in Buffalo or Watertown. There is a crime problem in the state of New York. That is because the Democrats in this state have dismantled the criminal justice system as we knew it. We have incredible cops, law enforcement officers, district attorneys. They can't do their jobs because the laws have changed and they are skewed to the lawbreaker not the person that we're trying to keep safe. So your family safety and security, your property, that is not the priority of the Democrats that are in power. It was asked out loud of Andrea Stewart Cousins and Carl Hastie and Kathy Hochul. 
and there's no change coming to these bail reform laws in this session. It's lunacy, you know, and, and it's going to permeate down to our assembly and our Senate campaigns, our local offices, our races for Congress. Safety and security is on the ballot, and the Republican Party is well established. We back the blue. We support your family's safety and security. The Democrat Party standing in the way of restoring that. How do you balance that with, well, Democratic Party says they did bail reform to try to undo some of the racial injustices in the criminal justice system. How do you balance those two things in your party? I, I heard you say before, obviously, the system needed some fixing. So how do you do that moving forward? Is it just about repealing bail reform? What do you do additionally? You have to be honest. And, and Andrew Cuomo wasn't honest when he shoved this in budget bills in the middle of the night without a hearing without consultation of law enforcement officials or district attorneys. I mean, I didn't understand the gravity of it myself until I traveled county to county and I'd be at a dinner and I'd be grabbed by the, the sheriff. He says, you gotta know what's going on right now. You gotta know what they're gonna do to me and our, our, our officers and our ability to do our jobs. That was the education point for me and how I understood the problem was coming on January 1st. And then that hit and then COVID right after. So is, is this was the absolute number one issue in the state of New York, the pandemic you know, got in the way a bit. But this is still here, it's roiling, it's, it's, it's disrupting lives. And you know, let, let's face it, how much of this was about honest public policy and how much of it was about being woke? In, in, in pandering to an extreme left-wing agenda. You know, New Yorkers don't want to be woke anymore. They, they're awake. They see what's happened. They see the results, and the results are bad. They need fix. Uh, they need those results to be fixed. They need people that will be on their side. Because you really have to ask out loud, what side are these politicians on that won't fix a problem that's blatant and obvious? So on that same theme, last question for you. Democrats are going to try to tie you to the far right of the party. As your party tries to tie Democrats to the far left, how do you separate yourself from that? Or do you want to separate yourself from that wing of the party? Or is it kind of like a big tent attitude about it? I, I think we're going to talk about the issues that are important to New Yorkers. And listen, Democrats are going to say, that, you know, they've had one, you know, very lame playbook for a bunch of years. Uh, but at the same time, I don't see a single Democrat that's looking to go out and really campaign on the virtues and all the wonderful things that are happening in the country right now in the Biden administration. Do you the current state of affairs is, is in, in how um, Americans and New Yorkers are going to ask themselves this November, are we better off when we were one year ago? And I think almost every person would say, of course we're not. You know, things are going very badly right now. Is there room for everybody in the Republican Party, or is there a point where you say, you know, you've identified with us, but maybe you don't align with all of our values? We welcome everyone. I mean, we have, we're putting together a diverse slate. Uh, you know, we have gone and, and created new organizations within the NYGOP. Last night, we announced the creation of the Asian American Caucus of our party because we see Asian voters gravitating towards the Republican Party, you know, by leaps and bounds. The, the results of the last city elections really show heavily Asian populations moving drastically towards the Republican nominee for all the issues that you and I have just talked about. You know, and it, it's, they're, they're finding a home in our party, they're welcome in our party, and they're leaders in our party. All right, State Republican Chair Nick Langworthy, thank you so much. Thank, thank you. you to our live studio audience. That's right. <laughs> it's really great to be joined by the press corps for this. 
So both major parties have now held their conventions, but there could be a snag in this year's elections for Congress and the legislature over redistricting. Let's get into it with Politico's Bill Mahoney. Bill, thank you as always. Thanks for having me. This is a really interesting court case. I wasn't around for the last round of redistricting. So just to lay out, uh, people are suing over the congressional and Senate lines, not the assembly, right? Correct. So yeah. we're in court right now. What does their case look like? Like, what is their argument that they're they're taking to these maps? Well, a lot of this rests on the 2012 constitutional amendment that came out as a deal from the last redistricting. Um, Andrew Cuomo at the time had promised to veto any gerrymandered lines. He wound up caving on that promise, but in return, he got this constitutional amendment that was approved by voters in 2014 that created this commission that would draw lines itself, but the legislature still had the power to ignore it and draw the lines like they've always done. So, you know, there's always <laughs> questions about how significant this amendment was. And I just feel like at but, that point, when, when that option came in that amendment, it was like, uh, okay, the legislature's going to do it. Yeah. We can try the commission, sure, but... I think everybody knew back in 2012 that this would end with the legislature ultimately drawing its own lines. Yeah. But the one thing this did have for the first time is it added to the state constitution some anti-gerrymandering language. Um, it did right. say, for example, that lines cannot be drawn to attack a certain candidate or help a particular incumbent or help a political party. And that's what the Republicans are hanging it on. If you look at the lines, they're pretty good for Democrats. It's pretty tough to make the case that, you know, if you were to just roll the dice, they would happen to come out this way for Democrats, um, coincidentally. And they were, of course, drawn by the Democrats in the legislature. So they're saying, if you look at these maps, like, you know, we've got currently 27 congressional seats and 19 are held by Democrats. The most likely outcome of these new maps is we would have 26 congressional seats and 22 would be won by Democrats. Um, and, you know, they're saying this is not a coincidence. There's clear evidence. If you were to gerrymander the lines to benefit Democrats, this is pretty much exactly what it would look like <laughs> out of all the millions of permutations of redistricting out there and how you could combine all the maps together. Right, and you got districts like Elise Stefanik's in the North Country that is now considerably more red because they took that, they, they carved it out so that they can make another district more blue, I mean, allegedly. There's basically four <laughs> seats in the state that a pretty good chunk of the state's Republicans are squeezed into these four districts, which means that the other 22 have um, Democratic advantages thanks to the way they did these lines. So they're hanging their case on this language that says it cannot be drawn to benefit a party, saying, if you look at these, there's really no room for doubt that this is what was done. So they were in court this week, and so the arguments, I think, were about two hours. Uh, the court was very nice and had them live stream for us journalists here in Albany, and, and I was passively listening to some of it. Some of it was some boring stuff like, um, uh, does somebody have what's called standing to sue, which means d can they actually sue, or are they not, does this not actually affect them? The other parts of it were kind of procedural. So uh, a lot of it was about where do we go from here in this lawsuit? So where did they end up there, Bill? Well, so the tricky thing with all this is the timing. We have primaries in June, and candidates just earlier this week started collecting petitions to get on the ballot for these primaries. Right. So let's say the Republican case is rock solid, which is debatable. You can, you know, the Republicans have some pretty good evidence that these lines help Democrats, but they probably need some more concrete evidence that this is done intentionally, and, you know, we'll have to find out through court whether or not they can come up with this evidence and whether or not they can convince judges on appeal that this is what happened. But let's say everything goes right for them and they have this proof. So what happens is the lines get thrown out. Mm. But at this point, since we are already well into the election season, if the lines get thrown out today, all these petitions that candidates have started to gather, they would probably have to throw them out. They would have no idea if they've started collecting petitions from people who actually live in the districts that they would be running in under new maps that would theoretically be created. And since we would have to have a whole round of drawing maps and voting on them and arguing those in court, 
that absolutely means the primary would need to be delayed from June, best case scenario. But it starts raising real questions of, can we actually have a primary then before November when there's a general election and what happens? Right. And can we manage to hold elections in time if we don't get this ball rolling pretty soon on some of these steps that happen with elections? The judge brought up this really interesting scenario where he was like, to your point, this is going to take a little bit. Maybe we leave these lines in place this year. And then we have a whole round of special elections next year, which to me just seems like a lot. That's what's <laughs> happened before. Oh, I didn't know that. Um, so basically, yeah, he said he was he did not support Republicans' request to throw the lines out immediately because he said it would lead to too much chaos. Um, he didn't foreclose on the possibility of doing that at some point down the road, but the fact that he doesn't want to create this chaos on March 3rd tells me he's probably not <laughs> going to want to create this chaos when he reaches his decision on April 4th. But he could order that the elections be held this year so we have people sitting in office and then a whole slate of special elections up and down the ballot for every congressional and state legislative seat in 2023. Now, the last time we had <laughs> maps thrown out was in 1964 in New York, where this gets into the federal one person, one vote stuff when you, the lines, the federal courts basically said the districts need to be roughly equal in population, so all the state legislative seats were thrown out. And we, what we wound up doing that year is holding elections in 1964 like normal, those members served, but then they had to draw new lines in the beginning of 1965 that met the new standards. Goodness. And then everybody was on the ballot again in 1965. So we had two one-year terms in a row, so basically three straight years with elections. And it's not, if, the, if Republicans can win, such a scenario like that is not off the table by any means. I don't know if I can do another election cycle. I don't know if I want to do this two years in a row, but well, I guess we'll have to see. Well, <laughs> as mentioned, it's March and we're already solidly into election season. So right? if this winds up um, being two years of elections in a row after this, that means we're never going to exit election season because, you know, the elections will be in November and then we'll enter the new election season next March 1st as well. And oh. this will just be, become a never-ending cycle in which candidates are stuck in permanent campaign It's making me sweaty. It's making me a little nauseous. Let's stop talking about it. Right. We are out of time anyway. Politico's Bill Mahoney, thank you so much. Thank you. And as we talk more about this year's elections, we are trying to get the governor on the show to talk about her re-election. It's now been four weeks since the last time we asked the governor to come on but neither her press team nor her campaign have agreed to an interview. But staying with Hochul now, New York has cut off any trace of state business with Russia over the country's invasion of Ukraine. Hochul signed an executive order on that last weekend and said Wednesday that the state is ready to welcome Ukrainian refugees fleeing the war. And just as we have through generations welcoming people like my immigrant grandparents who left great poverty, we stand together to open up the arms of our Statue of Liberty to all Ukrainians who want to come here for refuge as we work to rebuild the country after driving the Russians out, because that will be what happens. We will do that. The state controller's office is also checking to see if the state's massive retirement fund has any investments linked to Russia. But coming back now to the state capitol, lawmakers are moving closer to stronger sexual harassment laws here in New York after last year's Cuomo scandal. Daryl Camp is here with more. Thanks, Dan. So Democrats in the state Senate passed a package of bills this week that are aimed at accountability for sexual harassment in both the private sector and public office. One of those bills would close a loophole that left certain public employees, like legislative and judicial staff, out of the state's current sexual harassment protections. That bill was already passed in the Assembly, so now it heads to Governor Kathy Hochul for consideration. It's sponsored by Senator Andrew Gennardis, a Democrat from Brooklyn. When the majority in 2019 took a major step to
change New York State's sexual harassment laws and bring it into the 21st century, we carved out of those protections the very people who work in the institutions of government that we are serving in right now. That was wrong then. We are going to right that wrong today. That bill and others have been on the table for a few years, but picked up support after last year's controversies involving former Governor Andrew Cuomo. Cuomo resigned last year after several women accused him of sexual harassment, including some former staffers. He denies those claims and says he didn't do anything illegal. But that was just one part of a broader culture of harassment and intimidation in Albany that Senate Majority Leader Andrea Stewart-Cousins says they are trying to leave behind. Yes, there has been a culture, there has been a culture, and we're not part of that culture. Senate Democrats are also hoping to extend the window for filing sexual harassment claims. Another bill in the package from Manhattan Senator Brad Hoyleman would give victims three years to file claims with the State Division of Human Rights. Right now, that's one year. And a second bill, also from Gennardis, would give victims six years to sue their harassers, up from the current three. Max McAuliffe is from the New York State Coalition Against Sexual Assault. He says giving victims more time to report is important because sometimes it's difficult to come forward right away. It's imperative that we, uh, that the time frame is extended, um, you know, just to consider trauma-informed uh, care. Unfortunately, a lot of people say, you know, when invalidating victims of why didn't they report it immediately. Um, this is an extremely, you know, traumatic event in most cases that occurs. Neither of those bills have passed the assembly despite calls from advocates. The only other bill that has passed the assembly would create stronger protections against retaliation for reporting sexual harassment, and we will keep an eye on the rest. All right, thank you, Daryl, for that report. And there was some other news out of the state capitol as well this week. You can get it all every day on our website. That's at nynow.org. Until then, thanks for watching this week's New York Now. Have a great week and be well.